Good morning, my name is uh, Rick Jamison. I'm an elder here. We might ask, how can we see a God who cannot be seen? How can we hear a God whose voice cannot be heard? Well, he reveals himself in the Bible. It is in, it is in the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verses eight to 10, that God speaks to us this morning. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is what God says to us. Officer Ike Brown was a veteran in the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. Though he encountered death on numerous occasions, being a police officer, nothing prepared him for what would happen next. On May 27, 2002, his doorbell rang. And standing at his door was his sergeant, lieutenant, and chief. It wasn't until he saw the chaplain that he realized that something had terribly gone wrong. His 21-year-old son, Ike Brown Jr., was just gunned down and murdered by a man named Takoya Kreiner. Ike Jr. and a friend were playing video games in their apartment when Takoya shot them both dead from behind. Takoya was eventually found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. While grieving the loss of his oldest son, Officer Brown began to pray for Takoya. You see, as a follower of Jesus, he took the commands of Jesus seriously. And one of the things Jesus commands us to do is pray for our enemies. A couple years passed, and Officer Brown began thinking about writing a letter to the murderer of his son. He'd write a letter and crumple it up, throw it away. Write another letter, crumple it up, and throw it away. He thought to himself, this is madness. What am I doing? Why would this guy even want to hear from me? Why would I expose myself to be wounded yet again from this man? Three years later, however, he finally finished and mailed a letter. In his letter, he told Takoya that he's praying for him. He told Takoya that he's forgiven him. Not only that, but he ended his letter with a favor. He asked Takoya, I miss my son so much. Would you like to fill in for him until I see him again in heaven? A month later, Officer Brown received a letter back. He pulled over to the side of the highway and trembled as he opened its contents. Scared about, at what he might see, what threats and curses might be written to him. The first words of the letter read this, Dear Mr. Brown, 
I now know that God is real. I told God that if he really loved me, if he really forgave me, if he was really with me, he would give me a sign. And then I found your letter. Mr. Brown, you asked me for a favor. No way am I qualified, but if you'll still have me from now on, you're my dad and I'm your son. Officer Brown began to weep, tears of relief and joy. And from that moment on, he would visit Tokoya in prison. And in 2009, seven years after the murder, Officer Brown officially adopted Tokoya as his son. Now, why do I share this heartwarming story with you? I share it because in many ways, it illustrates what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about grace. For those of you who are relatively new to Christianity, for those of you who are uninitiated, I want you to know that this concept of grace that we sing about and hear about, this concept of grace is absolutely foundational to Christianity. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. It's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It's this concept of grace. And what is grace? Here's my definition. Grace is God's demerited favor. Grace is God's demerited favor. It's God's love and kindness extended to those who deserve the exact opposite. Grace is more than just buying a meal. Whoa. That's God's amen. <laughs> Grace is more than just buying a meal for someone who is hungry and homeless. Uh, Grace is buying a meal for, for, for someone who stole from you and scammed you out of your livelihood. Grace is more than just befriending the new kid who is sitting by himself. No, grace is befriending the bully who terrorized you when you were young. Grace is more than just adopting a helpless orphan from Romania. Grace is adopting a criminal who murdered your son. And this is what makes Christianity Christianity. The God of Christianity is a God of grace. He is a God who extends love and favor to those who deserve the opposite. He is a God who sacrifices himself for his enemies so that his enemies might become friends, so that his enemies might become family. The nature of grace is so radical, so stupendous, so amazing that it appears scandalous to the observer and is life-altering for the receiver. Let me repeat that again. Grace is so amazing, so radical, that it appears scandalous to the outside observer and it is life-altering for the receiver. To the outsider, Officer Brown's actions 
can seem outrageous. How could you adopt this man who murdered your son? How could you forgive him? How can you treat him as your own? Don't you love your son? In other words, if you love your son, you must hate his murderer. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some close to Officer Brown who is angry with his actions. Grace appears scandalous to the observer. At the same time, grace is life-altering for the receiver. It's so shocking, so unexpected that it changes you forever. In an interview, Takoya mentioned how grace changed his life completely, how the burden and shame and guilt of being a murderer was lifted, and now how he walks around the prison as a child of God, someone who's been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this grace, which is scandalous to the observer and life-altering for the receiver. Let me see if it's this. This grace that is life-altering for the receiver uh, is offered to us, to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For those of you who are with us the past couple of weeks, we looked first at verses one through three. And we talked about how Ephesians two, one through three describes the before picture of the believer. It describes what our life used to look like. And then in verses four through seven, it describes the after picture. It describes the impact Jesus makes on our life. God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We, oh my gosh, uh, we who were once vessels of wrath have now become trophies of grace. And I would not be surprised if there were some angels in heaven wondering what God was doing. Don't you realize what these guys did to you? They want nothing to do with you. And yet you would send your only begotten son to sacrifice himself so that they might become your children. Well, here in verses 8 through 10, Paul explains how we are saved. He explains how we can experience salvation He writes, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Let me share a few words about this verse. First, Paul talks about faith. He says we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the instrument by which we receive God's salvation. It's the open hand that we extend by which we grab a hold of the work of his son. Grace is the conduit or the channel 
through which God communicates his love and mercy to us. The complete and perfect work of Jesus is extended to his people through faith. And that's the first point I want to make. This salvation is received through faith. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to be redeemed and saved, you must believe and trust in Jesus alone. You must have faith in Jesus for your salvation. Now, after establishing this point, Paul goes on to tell us that this faith we possess this ability to believe in Jesus and trust in him alone for our salvation is also a gift from God. He says in verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Our ability to believe and grab hold of Jesus, that ability comes from God as a gift. And so the reason why we believe is not because, okay. Let's see if this helps. Okay, and so our ability to believe in God and trust in Jesus does not come because we are smarter than anyone else, because we're more intelligent than anyone else. No, this ability to believe comes from God alone. What does this mean? It means that every aspect of our salvation, from our regeneration to our faith to our justification and adoption, are all of grace. Not one iota of our salvation is a result of our own efforts. Charles Spurgeon once said this, if there be one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness, which we are to insert ourselves, then we are lost. But this is our confidence. The Lord who began will perfect. He has done it all, must do it all, and will do it all. Our confidence must not be in what we have done, nor in what we have resolved to do, but entirely in what the Lord will do. This is the reason why Paul ends with, no one can boast. When you and I are in heaven, no one will be congratulating, congratula congratulating themselves on a job well done. If you get into the university of your dreams, you can celebrate your achievement. If you get the job that you applied for, you can celebrate your achievement. But when you and I are in heaven, no one will ever say, yay, I am here because of what I have done. No, everyone in heaven will be saying, yay, we are here because of what he has done. As John Piper often says, heaven is not a hall of mirrors 
In heaven, we're not enamored with ourselves, congratulating ourselves, adoring ourselves. No, in heaven, all of creation will bow before the throne of God, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain for us. All honor, glory, and power belongs to him. And so the only boasting heard in heaven is boasting in the Lord, boasting of what God has done for us. And this is why our church fathers developed one of the anthems when it comes to understanding the Bible. They came up with the anthem, Soli Deo Gloria. Glory be to God alone. That's what we find in verses uh, eight through nine. Now, after explaining to us that salvation is by grace and not by our works, that it is a gift of God and not something rewarded by God for what we have done. An anticipation that I've heard on a number of occasions, especially from those who are hearing the gospel for the first time, is this. Jeff, hold on a second. So you're telling me that God's love for me is not earned, but given to me freely, having nothing to do with how good of a person I am? Yes. So are you telling me that no matter what I do, God will always love me? Yes. Well, that's awesome. And that means that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. That means I can live my life for me, and at the end of the day, God will still save me, right? Well, you see, the thinking makes sense. If God doesn't love me because of my good works, then why bother even doing good works? Paul anticipated this response. This is why he writes verse 10. He writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I want you to pay careful attention to prepositions here. In verse 9, Paul told us that salvation is not from good works. Here, however, he proceeds to tell us that we are saved for good works. It's vitally important that we see that we're not saved because of our good works, but we are saved for good works. You see, there's a big difference between cause and effect. And this is my weekly McDonald's analogy. What will happen if I eat 20 Big Macs a day, right? Just imagine that. What will happen? The effect of eating 20 Big Macs a day is that I'll have high cholesterol and I'll probably look unrecognizable, right? And so the cause is eating 20 Big Macs. The effect is an unrecognizable pastor, right? Cause and effect. 
Good works in Christianity is not the cause of God's love. Good works is the effect of God's love. It's not the prerequisite of God's love. It's the consequence of God's love. And let me explain why this is true. In addition to the prepositions, I want you to pay attention to the word translated as workmanship in verse 10. Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That word translated as workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which is where we get the word poem. We are God's poema. This is an extremely rare word. It only appears twice, once here and the other in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It's worth for us to look at Romans 1.20 to help us gain a better understanding of its significance. In Romans 1.20, Paul writes, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the poema of the world, creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. What's, what's Paul saying in Romans 1? Paul is telling us that God's invisible attributes are made visible in creation that there are aspects of God that are revealed through this created order. Dazzling flower fields give us a glimpse of his beauty. Towering mountains help us appreciate his majesty. Thundering waterfalls gives us a sense of his power. The vastness of the galaxies helps us see in part his immensity. God's invisible attributes are revealed through creation, which is his poema. This makes sense if you think about it. It makes sense because Paul is likening God to that of an artist and creation his piece of art. And like all works of art, whether a painting, a sculpture, a concerto, a poem, the creator, the creator who crafts it broadcasts him or herself to the world. An artist reveals how she sees the world through her painting. A poet reveals his perspective on love through his poem. A musician reveals her angst and frustration through a ballad. The point I'm trying to make is that works of art are an extension of the artist. What is created reveals the artist. And that's why we see glimpses of God in his created order. And that's why we produce good works. You see, in verse 10, Paul tells us that this world is not the only poema of God. Those who are in Christ Jesus have become the new poema of God. We are his masterpiece. We who are saved by grace have become God's new works of art. 
And this explains why good works is an effect of our salvation. We do good works because the one who recreated us is good. We become more kind, more patient, more loving, more self-controlled and generous because the one who shapes us is kind, patient, loving, and self-controlled. Now this puts a new perspective on the way we see the world. When you see God as an artist and you as his creation, it shapes how you view life. One thing I've realized over the years that is that as much as God uses his word to transform us and uses the body of Christ to shape us. And those are definitely two big means of grace. God also uses our circumstances, providence, to transform us. You see, the trials and difficulties of life are a chisel of God. The sufferings of life are his hammer that chip away and transform us into his image. For example, that difficult person that exists in your life is not sent to you because God wants you to be miserable, because God likes to torture you. No, that difficult person in your life, could it be that he or she is there because God is trying to make you more patient and more gracious? Could that person be his chisel helping you become more like Jesus? Every overwhelming trial that you face in life is not sent to you because God wants to torture you or make your life miserable. Perhaps that trial is God's hammer that chips away at the rough edges of your heart in order to humble you and help you rely more on him. That raise or promotion that comes your way is not sent to you so that you could stroke your own ego and build your own kingdom but perhaps that blessing is God's way of resourcing you so that you can resource others. Perhaps he's given you that influence so that you can leverage that influence and do things for God's kingdom that other people cannot do. When you see your life through the lens of being a poem, and God is the poet, then it radically transforms how you view the things and people that come your way. Lastly, knowing that we are God's poem and not only gives us a new perspective, but it also gives us enduring hope. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some of you here deeply discouraged and frustrated with yourself. I would not be surprised if there are some of you who are disappointed at your own lack of growth. We're already midway through 2023, 
and you begin to recognize that who you are today has not changed much from who you were at the beginning of the year two, five, ten years ago. Your devotional life is still stagnated. The fervency of your prayers has not increased. Your service to the Lord, no measurable change. You find yourself struggling with the same sins today as yesterday. And in light of the lack of growth, some of you right now might be doubting. Doubting that God still is at work in you. Doubting that the Holy Spirit indwells in you. But this is precisely why we need verse 10. We need to be reminded that we are God's workmanship. Let me ask you, when Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa, do you think he got it on the first try? No. How many drafts, how many revisions did he come up with before he finally painted something that matched what he envisioned? Before he finally painted something where he could proudly sign his name and put down his brush? Hundreds of drafts. And the reason why he waits until it's perfected is because when, once his signature is on it, he is telling the world, this is what I do. This is my handiwork. He's identified himself with it. And so he's only going to communicate to the world his best and not his worst. This gives me hope. Because verse 10 tells us that the moment that we placed our faith in Jesus and trusted in him, God put his signature on us and says, you are my masterpiece. You are the one I am going to identify with. You are going to broadcast to the world who I am. Now, do you think that just because there's a lack of growth on your part, just because there's some frustration on your part, God is going to say, ah, I did okay, and walk away? No, you bear his signature, and so you can be confident that the work he began in you, he will finish. Because our God does not make mistakes. He is a proud God. And the moment you confessed faith in him is the moment he cleaved himself to you. And so you can rest assured that he is going to make your life beautiful. He will. God is the one who is the author of your life. He is the one who will uh, complete you until the day of Christ Jesus. I know I've shared a lot today. I know there were a lot of distractions in the beginning, so let me briefly circle back and give you an overview of what we shared. 
Grace is God's demerited favor given to those who deserve the opposite. Grace is so radical that it's a scandalous to the observer and life-changing to the receiver. Grace explains how you and I are saved. We are saved and loved by God, not because we are more worthy or lovable than anyone else. No, we contribute nothing to our salvation. And lastly, we are the poema of God, created for good works. God is at work in you, transforming you to become more like him. And God will finish that work until the day we see him face to face in heaven. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, a gospel that declares to us that not only are we saved, but we are being transformed. A gospel that declares to us that you have done it all. And so we not, need not be insecure about our salvation, but we can rest and trust in you. We pray, O oh Lord, that as your poema, you would transform us to look more and more like you so that this world who is, that is desperately lost might see glimpses of you through us so that they too might become recreated in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name.